Hello and welcome to this episode in the Cosmology series of Physical Attraction, where we're going to be talking about Edwin Hubble. Last episode, we discussed the Great Debate, the argument in the 1920s over whether the nebulae that had been observed were objects within the Milky Way, or whole separate galaxies unto themselves. We discussed how both Shapley and Curtis, on either side of the Great Debate, were relying on incorrect and incomplete information to make their arguments. This episode, we're going to talk about the observations that finally resolved this debate, and conclusively proved that the universe was expanding. To do this, though, we're going to need to talk about Edwin Hubble, and I'm going to indulge in a bit of biography. Edwin Hubble was born in Missouri in 1889, and his family moved to Chicago nine years later. At school, he was more renowned as an athlete than a scholar, with his principal at high school graduation saying that he'd watched him for four years and never seen him study for more than ten minutes. Yet he also received a scholarship to study at the University of Chicago. It was here that his first exposure to experimental astronomy occurred, as a research assistant in a laboratory, before he obtained a degree in mathematics and astronomy in 1910. He then won a scholarship to Oxford, but he wasn't able to study astronomy there. He had promised his dying father, who never really accepted his obsession with looking through telescopes, that he would study for a proper career in the law instead. He returned to the US in 1913 and briefly taught at a high school before his father died in the winter of 1913. He then moved to study astronomy at the University of Chicago, where he obtained his PhD in astronomy by 1917, rushing to complete it so that he could fight in the First World War. Although he managed to rise all the way to the rank of major, the division he was assigned to was never actually deployed overseas. Hubble was far from the only astrophysicist on the front line in the First World War. Famously, Carl Schwarzschild, who worked on mathematical solutions to Einstein's theory of general relativity, he did so in between calculating the trajectories of artillery shells. It was there that Schwarzschild found that Einstein's theory allowed for the existence of black holes. Once the war was over, Hubble spent a year in Cambridge studying astronomy before eventually taking up a post at the Carnegie Institution's Mount Wilson Observatory near California in 1919. Hubble would remain on the staff at the Mount Wilson University until his death in 1953, and it was here that he would make many of his most famous discoveries, including the ones that finally resolved the great debate that we talked about in the last episode. Hubble broadly considered himself to be an experimentalist, but more than this, an empiricist. He felt that the best way that he could gain insight into the universe would be to observe it, and to try and use those observations to explain what was going on in a consistent way. He wrote of this opinion in his book, The Realm of the Nebulae, quote, Not until the empirical resources are exhausted need we pass on to the dreamy realms of speculation. And apparently, it extended even into his religious faith, too. When asked by a depressed friend whether he believed in God, he said, The whole thing is so much bigger than I am, and I can't understand it, so I just trust myself to it and forget about it. At another time, he said, We do not know why we are born into this world, but we can try to find out what sort of a world it is, at least in its physical aspects. One other thing to mention about Hubble, he has a reputation as a bit of a shameless self-promoter. Other astronomers and cosmologists, who often accounted for some of the observations that Hubble would use for himself, seldom got the credit that they deserved. When you get both a law, and a constant, and a free-floating space telescope named after you, you're obviously not shy about getting your name out there. It was his first observations at Mount Wilson that went a long way toward resolving the Great Debate, and it required the brand new, super-powerful telescope that had been developed at that observatory to determine what was really going on. Using the 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson, Edwin Hubble took images of M31, the Andromeda Nebula. 
The telescope finally had a sufficiently high resolution to determine that the galaxy was indeed more than just a blurry, smudgy patch in the sky. He discovered that M31 was composed of stars, and he even, within this, identified several Cepheid variable stars, which we discussed in the last episode could be used for measuring the distance to M31 as standard candles. If you remember our discussion of Cepheid stars, they have a very specific relationship between their variability of their period and their luminosity. Thus, if you measure the period of the Cepheid variable, you can estimate its luminosity, then you measure its apparent brightness, which you can do using the same observations you took to get its period, and you can measure its distance that way. When Hubble calculated the distance to Andromeda, he found that it was much larger than the size of the Milky Way, confirming that this was another galaxy, like the Milky Way, and not some kind of spiral nebula or cloud of gas and dust within the Milky Way. And this conclusively resolved the main issue at hand. In actuality, Hubble's observations still needed refining. His initial estimate was that the Andromeda Nebula was probably around 900,000 light-years away from Earth, based on how dim the Cepheid variable stars were. But he made some errors. There actually turned out to be two kinds of Cepheid variables, which sometimes led to mistakes. And some of the observed stars were not actually Cepheid variables in the initial set of observations. Corrections have now demonstrated he was off by about a factor of three. The Andromeda Galaxy is more like 2.4 million light-years away from the Milky Way. But in the grand scheme of things, when you're dealing with the orders of magnitude that we do in astronomy, this is really neither here nor there. Hubble's observation of Andromeda demonstrated conclusively that at least some of the nebulae must be distant galaxies, external galaxies to our own, far too distant to be part of our own Milky Way, and consequently that the universe was far vaster in scale than had previously been widely appreciated. Having proven that certain nebulae were external galaxies, although Hubble himself didn't use this term, he then set about classifying them that he had found, trying to identify different kinds and common features amongst them. His system of classifications, with some modifications, is still broadly used today. Astronomers have estimated that a typical galaxy contains about 100 billion stars and measures about 100,000 light-years across. And these are the types that were sorted into. There are spirals and barred spirals. Around 30% of all known galaxies are spirals and barred spirals. Spiral galaxies are essentially disc-shaped, with bulbous or lens-shaped central regions of nuclei, uh, bright spiral arms that are also rich in nebulae and interstellar material around the outside. Spiral galaxies contain stars of all ages, the youngest and newest of which are generally located within the spiral arms. Barred spirals are similar to spirals, but have central regions or nuclei consisting of stars arranged in the shape of a bar, rather than just a dense core. Spiral arms are attached to the end of the bars. Both spiral and barred spiral galaxies rotate, then we have elliptical galaxies. About 60% of all known galaxies are ellipticals. Elliptical galaxies are generally smaller than spirals and barred spirals and have no spiral arms. Elliptical galaxies are virtually devoid of nebulae and interstellar material and consequently contain mostly old stars. Then there are the irregular galaxies. Around 10% of all known galaxies are irregulars. Irregular galaxies are smaller than spirals, barred spirals and ellipticals. It is thought that many irregular galaxies owe their shape, or lack of a coherent shape, to the gravitational attraction of much larger galaxies nearby that are pulling them in all different directions. Irregular galaxies are rich in nebulae and interstellar material, and consequently they contain mostly young stars. Now galaxies themselves are not scattered randomly throughout the universe. They occur in clusters. A rich cluster may contain hundreds or even thousands of galaxies. A poor cluster, or group, may contain as few as ten. Clusters of galaxies themselves form superclusters, which can spread across regions of space up to 100 million light years across. 
Superclusters are the largest known structures of any kind that are gravitationally bound together in the universe. So now we can classify our own galaxy, the Milky Way, according to Hubble's system. The Milky Way is a barred spiral galaxy, with our own solar system around 27,000 light years from its centre. And because it's impossible to get a sense of scale for these things without this kind of fun popcorn analogy, if our solar system out to Neptune is about the size of a US quarter, then the galaxy is about the size of the entire United States. Please substitute for your own currencies and nations as appropriate. Now there is one other important observation that Hubble made about his extragalactic nebulae that I think it's important to note, which relates to our conception of the universe as a whole. He's interested in how they are distributed across different directions in the sky. He wrote in the realm of the nebulae, quote, The small-scale distribution is very irregular. Nebulae are found singly or in pairs, in groups of various sizes, or in clusters. The galactic system is the chief component of a triplet, where the Magellanic clouds are the other members. When large regions of the sky or large volumes of space are compared, the small-scale irregularities average out, and the large-scale distribution is sensibly uniform. But the true distribution is confused by local obscuration. Great clouds of gas and dust in the plane of the galaxy can obscure far-off nebulae. It is only when these various effects of galactic obscuration are removed that the nebula distribution over the sky is revealed as uniform, or isotropic, the same in all directions. End quote. So, what Hubble was finding here was observational evidence that backs up a pretty strong principle throughout cosmology. So central to our understanding of cosmology, in fact, that it is often referred to as the cosmological principle. And this is the idea that the universe, when observed on a large enough scale, is both homogeneous and isotropic. In other words, it's the same wherever you look, if you take any patch out of the universe it will look similar, and it's the same in all directions that you look, so there's no special privileged directions for the universe as a whole. Now this may initially sound a little bit confusing, even counterintuitive. After all, we know that the universe is made up of stars, surrounded by vast swaths of basically empty space. In turn, these stars are collected into galaxies as clusters of stars, and the galaxies themselves are surrounded by huge amounts of empty space. This doesn't sound particularly homogeneous or isotropic for that matter. I mean, you can pick out a zone that has a galaxy in versus a zone that doesn't, and you can look in directions where there are some galaxies and directions where there might not be as many. But it's all a question of scale and perspective. If you zoom in on a surface that appears flat, you will inevitably see irregularities. Clusters of atoms, say, dense and divots that aren't apparent at first glance. But from far enough away, it appears flat. And actually, you can see that it is flat. This is essentially the idea behind the universe. These local clusters of mass in the form of stars, stellar systems and galaxies, of course they arise because gravity tends to clump stuff together over time. But, if you zoom out far enough, and pick a given patch of the universe, it should have roughly the same number of galaxies in it. The number of galaxies that you're observing from there should be roughly the same in every direction. In other words, there are no special directions or special places in the universe as a whole. There is no centre of the universe. It's not like our galaxy, where we know that it's a disk with a bulge in the middle, and therefore there are special directions designed and defined by the shape of the galaxy itself. You can go away from the disk, and that's one axis that's defined for you. You can go towards the centre of the galaxy, towards the circumference, etc. But the cosmological principle suggests that in the universe as a whole, there are no special directions, that's the isotropy, and there are no special locations within the galaxy, that's the homogeneity. And this was backed up by Hubble's initial observations.
This is also quite a philosophically satisfying result, though I should mention that there are still people making observations about how flat the universe really is. The reason here is a pretty fundamental one to physics, and it's one of these ideas of symmetry and invariance. We know from Emmy Noether's famous theorem that symmetries lead to conservation laws. The fact that momentum in the universe is conserved, that things tend to keep going if a force doesn't act on them, as Newton knew, it's not some magical property that comes from nowhere. It's a consequence of physics evolving in a space where it doesn't matter if you move five metres to the left, the laws of physics are still the same. You have translational invariance, in other words. That is to say, the physics does not vary when you translate yourself through space. And it turns out from Noether's theorem that every time you have an invariance like that, every time you can change something and the physics remains the same, you have a conservation law. This translational invariance is what gives you conservation of momentum. Think about situations where momentum isn't conserved. It's because a force is acting. But the nature of that force means that the physics is necessarily different when you move from location to location. Similarly, if we imagine something that is invariant when you twist it around by an angle, that will tell you that angular momentum is the thing that's conserved. Invariance in time implies conservation of energy. Symmetries simplify our ability to describe the universe. The simplest thing to describe is a perfect sphere with no special directions. Then all you need is the radius of the sphere, and you know what the rest of the sphere looks like, because you know that it's spherically symmetrical. Once you turn that sphere into an ellipse, though, there's suddenly a special direction, and you need more information to describe it, at least two pieces of information now. Imagine you can live on the surface of a sphere, and you know for sure that it's spherical. You can look around locally, figure out its radius, and then you know exactly what's going on on the other side of the sphere. If one half of your world is a smooth sphere, though, and the other half is something much more complicated, say a sculpture of Nicolas Cage's face, then your universe isn't isotropic and homogenous after all, and you can't use observations of this part of it to figure out what must be happening in that part. This is indeed a disturbing universe. The fact that the universe has no special directions means that we don't need to explain why some particular directions are special. Imagine that the universe was pervaded with some force that dragged everything out in a particular direction. Say, the whole thing was rotating about one axis, which tended to flatten all of the galaxies out so that they too formed a disk. Then we'd need to explain why the whole universe was rotating. It would be a bit of a nightmare. With the cosmological principle, there's less to explain about the nature of the universe. So the cosmological principle is an assumption but it's one that allows us to infer a hell of a lot about the large-scale structure of the universe based on the nearby patches that we can observe. Hubble's observations of the galaxies seem to confirm that it was indeed the case, and so we can assume that in far-off regions of the universe, a long way from where we can observe, there are probably star systems and galaxies and superclusters that behave a lot like our own. And it's also worth saying that, although Hubble himself probably wouldn't think about it like this, it's another point where our understanding of our real place in the universe changes again. Homogeneity and isotropy tells us that there's nothing really special about our place in the universe, not our solar system and not our galaxy. If our galaxy was in a totally different region of space, we would probably be looking out at the whole thing and seeing a picture that looks much the same. Previously in our story then, we've been building up the different tools in the cosmological toolkit. 
attempts to estimate distances to far-off stars and galaxies and their compositions, and the different ways that we've built up to infer facts about the universe from observing starlight. We described how Henrietta Leavitt's standard candles could tell us the distances to far-off objects, and how Hubble used observations of those standard candles to confirm that the nebulae were indeed galaxies. And we described how Vesto Slipher discovered that the light from distant galaxies was being redshifted, that the galaxies were apparently rushing away from Earth, and this was happening due to the Doppler effect, which stretched out the wavelength of that light. I'm now going to discuss how Hubble combined those observations to determine his famous law, and the notion that the universe was expanding. And then next episode, we'll loop back around to talk about how the theorists were dealing with this, the development of theoretical cosmology, Albert Einstein, and how Hubble's observations were understood within our theories of how the universe should behave as a whole. As Hubble continued to observe and meticulously document and categorise the galaxies, one of the things that he was interested in was observing the redshifts of these galaxies, the amount that the Doppler effect was changing the wavelength of the light. The frequencies of light from these galaxies, which you'll remember we discussed, according to the Doppler effect, are changing. This is the, the wavelength being dragged out by the apparent recession of these galaxies, or, equivalently, the frequencies getting higher. You can see that there is the inverse relation between frequency and wavelength. Now, he measured the distances to 24 of these galaxies, and then, in a seminal 1929 paper, examined the relationship between the redshifts in the galaxies and the distances to the galaxies. In one of those glorious moments of physics, plotting the data seemed to confirm a simple straight line. The redshifts of the galaxies were directly proportional to how far away the galaxies appeared to be. In other words, if you interpret the frequency shift as velocity, the further away the galaxies are from Earth, the faster they appear to be moving from us. And this is the same in all directions. This is what's known as Hubble's law, and the constant of proportionality is the Hubble constant. So you'll sometimes see this written v equals h naught d, where v is the apparent recessional velocity of the galaxy, h naught is Hubble's constant, and d is the distance to the galaxy. It's important to understand that this was a really a pretty astonishing result. In the early days, when Slipher had observed the redshifts of distant objects, it had sort of generally been assumed that this was all apparent motion due to the motion of the solar system relative to the fixed stars. From your perspective, if you're moving in some direction, it does make sense that some objects will appear to be moving away from you while others approach. That was really what astronomers had initially expected to find, and they thought that once they could correct for the motion of the solar system, they'd find that there were probably a bunch of objects moving in a range of different directions, much more slowly than had been observed. Hubble's observations, however, couldn't be explained away by introducing the idea that our solar system or galaxy was moving relative to everything else, because they showed that every far-off galaxy was receding away from us, and at a rate proportional to how far away they were. Hubble was reluctant to interpret this observation too much. As late as 1931, he wrote to Dutch cosmologist Willem de Sitter, expressing his opinion that, quote, Mr. Hummerson and I are both deeply sensible of your gracious appreciation of the papers on velocities and distances of nebulae. We use the term apparent velocities to emphasise the empirical features of the correlation. The interpretation, we feel, should be left to you and the very few others who are competent to discuss the matter with authority. End quote. In other words, 
Hubble was reluctant to even interpret the redshifts as actual velocities, as actual evidence that these galaxies were moving, but instead strictly noted that all he had done was make the observation of these redshifts and determine this empirical law, which future measurements of the galaxies seemed to fit. And this reluctance continues right up when he's writing his book in the 1930s about his life in astronomies, where he basically suggests that it's too early to interpret these redshifts as actual velocities, and he views this as something where more observation is needed to be certain. Maybe something else is happening to the light on its way to us. At this time, Hubble's estimate of Hubble's constant, this relationship between the distance and the speed of receding galaxies, was way off by about a factor of seven or so, again due to the errors in measuring the precise distances that he was making at the time, which led to a misapprehension of how far away the Andromeda galaxy was. But the so-called distances to nearby galaxies that Hubble was observing were in fact proportional to the real distances after the correction, and so the law still held even if you look at the correct distances. I suppose it's only a lucky thing that Hubble was making this kind of systematic error so he could still figure out his law, even though getting all of the distances wrong. One immediate consequence that Hubble did appreciate, and was happy about, was the fact that once you have this relationship, and you believe that it holds in general, suddenly you have a brand new tool for measuring distances, and you don't necessarily need to solely rely on pesky Cepheid variables or other standard candles like supernovae to figure out how far away something is. Instead, providing you have a decent measurement of the Hubble constant, you just need to measure the frequency of light from far-off objects. You can see familiar lines like the hydrogen emission or absorption lines and see how far they've been shifted. By measuring the redshift, and using Hubble's constant, you can infer the distance to the far-off object. And indeed, in astronomy now, it's quite frequent to see people refer to distances in terms of redshifts rather than in terms of megaparsecs, in just the same way that in particle physics, people often refer to the masses of particles as energies. In both cases, you've got this nice linear relationship which means that energy and mass are basically the same thing, E equals mc squared. In the same way as distance and cosmological redshift are related through V equals h naught d, once you've corrected for any actual motions in your observations. While Hubble himself was very reluctant to interpret what the redshifts meant as a strict observationalist, the idea was very exciting to a lot of theoretical cosmologists. The theorists already had a framework that would nicely explain how Hubble's law fit into our understanding of the universe as a whole. Because, after all, you can explain the whole phenomenon if you simply assume that space itself is expanding. Think about it this way. Imagine an object one metre away from you. Space is expanding, such that one metre doubles in length in a second. In a second, that object will be two metres away from you. And so, instantaneously, when it's one metre away from you, it will seem to be moving at one metre per second. Then that two metre doubles in another second. Suddenly, the object is four metres away and appears to have moved at two metres per second. And so on. In this toy example, we can see that the speed the object seems to have moving away from us is always directly proportional to the distance, because that distance determines how much space is between us and the object and we're assuming that that distance itself is the thing that it's expanding. So the more distance you have, the more it can expand. You can easily see too how this fits into the cosmological principle, the idea that the universe will broadly look the same regardless of where you're looking at it from. With an expanding universe where every galaxy you can observe will apparently be rushing away from you at a speed proportional to its distance to you, 
the cosmological principle is satisfied. If we lived in Andromeda, rather than the Milky Way, we would see the Milky Way rushing away from us at a speed proportional to the Hubble constant multiplied by the distance between the galaxies, as the space between us expands. It's not that we are in a special position in the universe, with all things exploding away from us particularly, it's just that this is the picture that everyone sees, regardless of where they are. Regardless of where you are, the distance between us right now is expanding, as the pathetic gravitational force that attracts the two of us together tries desperately, in vain, to appeal against that. And indeed, I did work it out that if you uh, are of average height, over the course of your lifetime, thanks to the expansion of the universe uh, that is inferred due to Hubble's constant, you will probably gain around 700 nanometers in height. So over the course of your lifetime, uh, you will get taller by approximately the wavelength of visible light. So just about detectable. If you're self-conscious about your height, probably not enough to make a huge difference. In other words, Hubble's law and Hubble's observations slotted nicely into a theoretical framework that allowed for space itself to expand over time. Hubble himself may not have felt like this was yet confirmed science, even as theoretical and observational cosmologists today endlessly battle over precision measurements of his Hubble constant. But the theorists were ready to leap into the unknown and conclude that the universe itself was expanding and theorise about why that might be and what its ultimate future might be. And so next episode, we will discuss the origins of theoretical cosmology, how it was that Einstein's theory of gravity led to the idea of a space-time that could expand, and how Hubble's observations in 1929 were interpreted by those who have been trying to understand the nature of the universe for the last few decades. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction in our series on cosmology. There are plenty of ways you can help out the show if you'd like to help us produce more episodes. You can find us on the web at physicpodcast.com. There you will find an episode guide that will give you a guide to all of the past episodes if this is the first one you've heard. Head back to the start of the cosmology series, but also listen to all the interviews we've done, our series on nuclear fusion, our many, many series on many different topics. You'll find a guide there that will help you. The scripts, by the way, are being published now at physicalattraction.medium.com. So if you want to read some past scripts for these episodes or track down that thing I said one time, you can find them there. We have a subreddit. If you go to reddit.com slash r slash physicspodcast, you'll be able to discuss the most recent episodes of the show with a very small burgeoning community that exists there. You can also find us on Twitter at physicspod and the Facebook page Physical Attraction. The best way to get in touch with us, though, is that contact form on the website. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like us to cover, things you think we should expand on, things you think we should cover in more detail, uh, people you'd like to hear us interview, any of that stuff, please do send it there. You can support the show in a number of ways. There's a PayPal link on the website physicspodcast.com, which you can go and donate to for a one-time donation. Or you can subscribe to the Patreon, where you'll get early episodes and special bonus episodes that will only be released to people who are subscribed to the Patreon. And thank you very much to all of those of you who have done and have supported the show for many months now. I really, really appreciate it. If you want to support the show in a non-financial way, you can review us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, All of that stuff helps us get noticed in the algorithm and all that sort of thing. And you can tell other people who might be interested to listen to the show. Um, Particularly for these uh, series on physics, if you happen to be a teacher or someone who is involved in teaching, I don't know, maybe people will find this useful as uh, some extra background material if you're covering this kind of thing for a school class. Um, I will try and keep it clean. Until next time then, please do take care.